Welcome to the Mama Truth Show, where soulful mamas embrace the whole truth of the messiness and magic of motherhood. Check us out at mamatruthshow.com. Here's your host, Amy Ehlers, the Wake Up Call Coach. Happy Mama Truth Monday, mamas. It's Amy Ehlers, the Wake Up Call Coach here, back with a really juicy show for you today. We're going to talk about your brain on puberty and what the heck our kids are going through as they enter into puberty and while they're in puberty and, you know, partially so that we can be more compassionate with them because I don't know about you, but for me anyway, <laughs> puberty was a long time ago. So I feel like it's a far distant cry and I'm like, what was that like when I was 16? Um, or in this case, what, am, what was I like when I was nine and a half, which is how old my oldest daughter is. But I really wanted to give us some context here about puberty and bring someone that is an absolute expert in this field. She's actually, her daughter also goes to school with my daughter, Annabella. So I'm so excited to welcome Anna Suleiman here. She is a research scientist with the Center on Develop, on De hold on, let me try that again. She's a research scientist with the Center on the Developing Adolescent located at UC Berkeley. She completed her doctor PH and is a postdoctoral fellowship at UC Berkeley. And she's currently the coordinating director for the Center on the Developing Adolescent. And the ultimate goal of her research is to develop interventions that support healthily, healthy sexual development and improved sexual health outcomes for adolescents. I, I don't know why I'm like getting all tongue-tied. I think it's the puberty talk. I'm all, woo! Okay, so with that, Anna, thank you so much for being here with me, my dear. Thanks, Amy. It's my pleasure. It's fun to be here to have this discussion. Yeah, well, um, you know, you and also um, the health teacher at the school where our daughters go, um, did this really great informative talk for parents at the school. And I was like, I need to interview you on the Mama Truth Show because I know for me with Annabella, she's starting to go through puberty and I'm seeing like some of those signs. And I just think it's fascinating. I'm, I love brain research. I think it's so interesting. So I love that you are here in this context of bringing both of those interesting topics together. And I'm curious, tell us a little bit more about the research that you're doing and some of the discoveries that you're having. Sure, so we are really interested in thinking about, one, I just wanna highlight that the thing I think we often forget as parents is that puberty actually happens for a purpose. Like it's really normal and it all happens so that, you, so that children can go through this amazing important transition and become physically and socially um, effective, responsible adults in the world. Right. And I think that sometimes we often lose sight of that because it can be so crazy and frustrating while it's happening. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> totally. So what we, the research that we're trying to do right now at the center is really looking at like, what do we know about adolescent brain development and the highly adaptive things that are changing? Why do these things occur the way that they do? And how can we best support them both as like parents, but also thinking in the ways of um, how schools and programs and other organizations can support that development in the most effective way. So what, like, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in the day-to-day? -day? Like, are you in a lab and do you have teenagers coming in? Like, tell us a little bit about what the day-to-day -day looks like. With sure. What you're doing. So 
it varies. So we have done where we've brought young people into the lab. We actually haven't done a huge amount of scanning research recently at our, at our lab. So it's not like we're bringing young people and putting them into the scanner. But the center actually has a leadership team that spans people, everyone from people who are doing basic science. So they're looking at animal models of puberty, they're looking at rodents, and they're looking at developing brains in, in animals to figure out what we can do, mm. and what we can understand, all the way through people who are doing extensive research of bringing a lot of young people into the lab and doing a lot of scanning, having them do behavioral tasks, try to figure out what's going on. And then we, at this point, are actually on the other end of things where we're trying to really figure out, like, how do we take this out in the world? How, we, how do we translate this into interventions in classrooms? How do we give information to parents? How do we package this so that what we know is making a difference? Mm -hmm. And then we're also trying to figure out, like, what are the questions that are coming out of the field? So what are parents asking? Yeah. What are teachers struggling with that we can pull back into the science and look at in the laboratory and explore in a meaningful way? So we are, like, trying to be the bridge right now between these two worlds. I love that. And so, like, for you, what would you say is some of, are some of the biggest discoveries that you've had around what happens to the brain when we go through this magical time, as you put it the other night, of, you know, of adolescence and of puberty. Yeah. So I think that there's a number of key things. Like one thing that we really know is that there's this massive social reorientation that occurs in the brain. And for a long time, there was sort of this running narrative in the popular media that adolescents had some sort of broken or deficient brain, that their prefrontal cortex wasn't fully engaged, that they couldn't control themselves, they were totally crazy and impulsive. And what we know now is that that really isn't true. What is actually occurring is this highly adaptive transition and that it's not so much about the regions of the brain that are developing, but it's communication between the different regions of the brain and the connectivity, the way that the various regions of the brain are connecting with each other, the pathways that are being established that are really changing. And they're changing in a way that is orienting adolescents to be more motivated socially in different ways. So for example, one of the things that we know happens is that a lot of people say, you know, adolescents are fearless. They don't, you know, they're not afraid of anything. They're willing to try anything. And what we know now from exciting research, both in that looks at the neuroscience as well as the behavior, is that it's not that adolescents aren't afraid of things. It's actually that they love these super scary things. They're highly aroused by things that make them scared and they find it thrilling. Huh. And if you think about it, that's really, it's really important because we are asking adolescents to try a whole lot of crazy new things in their lives. So yeah. somebody transitions from being a child to an adult, they need to like take on a whole bunch of new responsibilities. If you think about an average adolescent going through puberty here in America, they need to go through a massive school transition, maybe once, if not twice. Mm -hmm. They need to start being able to navigate new social responsibilities they have at their in their family, as well as with their peers. Yep. They need to start sort of finding themselves in the world. So whether that is anything from like trying out for a play or a new sports team or asking somebody out on a first date, these are all things that are super scary. Right. <laughs> and we, so adolescents have to like it. Like they have to be, right. it's not that they're not scared. It's that they're like, oh my God, it's scary and so awesome. But give me more. <laughs> I know when you say like the things that are scary, of course, all that I go to as a mom is like, oh my gosh, it means like drinking and driving or jumping off cliffs or whatever. But 
you're right. It's like asking a person out is scary. Standing up in class is scary. Like all of these things are freaking scary. And so if we put it in that context that their brains are really developing so they can be braver. Yeah. That actually makes it such a, like such a cool thing that's happening for them. It is. And I, you know, and you're, you're really hitting on an important thing because all of these, what we talk about all the time is that they're sort of spirals that happen early in adolescence, like in this pubertal time, somebody can sort of spiral in a really positive direction that these, we, young people are inclined to take risks Mm. and they're going to take risks. Mm. And so we want them to take risks that are positive and, and health enhancing rather than risks that are super crazy and scary. Right. Now, at the same time, it's not that we want to protect them from everything because sometimes they're going to make a bad choice and they're going to learn a really important lesson and they're going to know they don't want to do that again. Yeah. Or they're going to, like, something's going to really mess up and they're going to fail and they're going to be like, oh, that was terrible. Um, So sometimes it's like the mistakes or the things that go bad the first time that they get their heart broken, these really tragic moments are actually really important parts of the learning pathway too. Right. So it like for all of us moms that are listening here, it's like being able to reframe what our, what our children are going through and what they're doing and really congratulating them for taking the risk and really having that being able to, as a mom say, wow, that sounds like it was really scary or that was a huge risk and it paid off or that was a huge risk and look, it didn't work out so well, but it's like really getting that this is part of the necessary growth of them to mature into being an adult. Totally. And I think, you know, that's something that when, when your child is small, we celebrate all these milestones and transitions in huge ways. When your kid takes their first step or when they speak their first word, it's like you're there cheering on the sidelines. Totally. When they're doing that as an adolescent, you're like, oh my God, stop it. You're so <laughs> annoying. You're driving me crazy. You're breaking my rules. What is going on? Yeah. And so when we can find those moments to really celebrate, yeah. um, like, you know, my daughter is somebody who almost never has, she's a good role follower. She almost rarely gets in trouble. <laughs> Just recently as she's in this time, she got really mad at me and yeah. decided to go upstairs and dump water all over my bed and put lotion all in between the sheets <laughs> and then remake the bed. No and, way. Yeah. Whoa. And then she all of a sudden came back downstairs and all of a sudden looked at me and was like, oh my God, don't go in your bedroom. <laughs> I was like, what happened? So from about dinner until bedtime, we sort of like danced around this. And I went upstairs knowing something had happened. And I yeah. went and I opened up my bed. And like my first instinct was like, oh my God. Yeah. And I just looked at her and I burst out laughing. And I said, whoa, girl, when you go, you go big. That was <laughs> awesome. I'm like, you're still in trouble and you still have to make all the beds in the house for the next month. But that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Milestone, milestone, yes, exactly. <laughs> First rebellion, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so great. Well, and I, you know, I feel like um, there's kind of this thing, and I remember this even from group that like people be like, oh yeah, you know, my son's in um, eighth grade and he hasn't hit puberty yet, or my daughter's in third grade and she's hit puberty or whatever, and. And I feel like there's some pretty big myths or big fat lies, as I like to call them, about when puberty actually begins. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if you could just tell us a little bit about like the stages of puberty and when it begins and when it ends on average. 
Yeah, sure. So one of the things we know is that puberty is trending earlier across the globe. And right. so it's happening earlier and earlier. But it's interesting because there's a lot of individual variation around that. Mm -hmm. So the very early signs of puberty, the very first hormonal transitions are often happening between the ages of eight to 10. Mm -hmm. Now, there may not be any physical signs at that point. There may need not be a lot of behavioral indications, but usually the system is gearing up at that point. Mm -hmm. And then the actual physical transitions that you start to see um, that usually for girls begin with like breast budding for boys, it often looks like um, hair growth or changes in the facial structure as the earlier signs. Those things are often happening somewhere between the ages of uh, nine to 11 or 10 to 12, depending on the young person. Mm -hmm. And the one thing you do want to remember is that girls are on average going through puberty or starting puberty about a year and a half earlier than boys. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Has it always been that way or has that discrepancy gotten bigger? No, it's been about the same. And okay. um, the age of, in general, of puberty is declining. Mm -hmm. um, but it does seem to be trending a little bit earlier for girls than boys. And we don't mm -hmm. quite know why. Yeah. One of the interesting things that's happening with that, though, is that girls are showing the early signs of puberty earlier, like breast budding and other things. But when they get their first period, which is actually a very late sign of puberty, that's mm. actually almost an indication that it's close to the end. Really? Um, that is actually not declining at quite the same rapid pace as these other factors. So Interesting. We, yeah. That's and, fascinating. Yeah. So we're just trying to figure out what's going on there. And it does mean that that young people are spending a longer period of time in puberty. Right. And we don't know what that means as far as brain development and all these, like sort of the cascade of hormones that are contributing to these changes. It raises a lot of really interesting questions. That's fascinating. And I, I feel like there's this big conversation that's going on in the world that the reason that girls in particular, I, I think girls in particular, because usually the physical signs other people can notice, you can notice a girl's whose breasts are budding more than you can. You're not going to go and like look under an armpit for a boy right. or what have you. But, um, but it feels like there's this big conversation that it's because of the hormones in our food. Do you find that there's any truth to that? Because you said it was also across the globe, which I know other countries don't have the same food craziness that's going on in our country. Yeah, that's, it's really complex. And I don't think we have a good indication of really what's happening. Hmm. Um, there's, I think there's probably a lot of genetic factors that are occurring. There's a lot of environmental factors that are occurring. Hmm. You know, interestingly enough, um, they can, they've shown that sometimes being in a really high stress environment can make puberty start earlier for a number of reasons. Mm. Other cases, it can actually delay puberty. Um, it, that seems to be different across the genders too. For boys and girls, it seems to be different. Huh. Um, there's data showing that for girls, for example, if they live in a household with somebody other than their biological father, a man, a male figure other than their biological father, they're more likely to go through puberty earlier. Wow. So, yeah. The body is like, I think there's a lot of mysteries to puberty that we don't quite understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we can't really just blame the food sources. I mean, I think that hormone exposure is definitely problematic. There's also a lot of other environmental factors that probably affect our genetics as well that can influence pubertal timing. Yeah. So when you first, as a mom, start noticing that your child is beginning puberty, is going through puberty, what are some of the ways that we can really support our kids during that time? Like we I loved that story that you just told about like make, allowing that to be funny instead yeah. of having it be like 
the ultimate punishment ever um, <laughs> because it was like her, like, you know, stepping out and taking a risk. But um, <laughs> I'm curious what other tips that you have for parents and for moms in particular about this as they see their children going through this phase. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think is super cool that we've learned from some of the neuroimaging research is that we actually know that the functional presence of, of parenting or motherhood changes during this time. So what it means is like your child's brain actually responds to you differently as they go through puberty. Mm -hmm. And so what they've shown is that in early childhood, being around as a mom and being supportive of them actually is a way to help ease their anxiety, concerns, and their fear response to stressful situations. Right. The interesting thing is that by the time that a child is about eight or nine years old, that effect goes away. So they no longer, so, and they no longer can mediate the cortisol stress response. And um, they actually also no longer reduce the fear reactivity in the brain in response to stressful faces. There's a lot of things that we know now. So the functional purpose of parenting changes. So I think it's important. Like I always remember that as a parent as like, my role is changing. I need to think about how to do this differently. Yeah. And then as far as strategies, I think also just recognizing that this is a time where your child is, they are trying to differentiate from you a little bit and try to figure out their own identity in the world, but they still really need you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think the behavioral research has shown us really nicely is that kids that are going through puberty and even older adolescents, they care what their parents think. They want their parents' advice. They share their parents' values. And so we really want to just keep talking to them as much as possible. We want to be like sensitive to the ways in which the relationship is changing. But I think also as parents, we have to be taking care of ourselves because when our kids are little, they hug us, they kiss us, they like give us all this really positive feedback. And that often dwindles some when we go into parenting and adolescence. Yeah. And so we just have to be gentle with ourselves and recognize the reason it feels so hard is not because when we were like knee deep in diapers and poop at two, that was not fun. Like nobody was having fun then, but there was like all this love and smiles and cuddles that made it feel so great. Well, now we're kind of like knee deep in the poop again, but we don't get all the cuddles. Right. And so we just have to think about a way to like, how can we care for ourselves and keep ourselves feeling positive about the relationship? And find things that we can share with our kids that we really still enjoy doing with them. I love what you're saying. And I just want to kind of pull out a few pieces of that because I remember when you were talking about that study, um, how, and it's so interesting for me in my household because my girls are six and a half years apart. Um, you know, I have one that just finished potty training and one that's in the early stages of puberty. And so I have like one that's like all about mama, 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 like in that, like literally in the shit with her, <laughs> like in the poop with her, like cleaning it really, like wiping her butt when she off the potty and really encouraging her to use that potty. And then I have the other one where, you know, my presence feels different. It's not mama, mama, mama all the time, the way that obviously it is with my three-year-old. So it's really interesting because I'm kind of going through both of those uh, because because people talk about that the twos and the threes are almost like a mini puberty time, right? Yep. Yeah. 
So it's like, there's this huge brain thing going on for my three-year-old and this huge brain thing going on for my nine and a half year old. <laughs> and so it's just, it's a really interesting experience as a mom. And I think it's, it's funny too, because um, it, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. Annabella said to me the other day when we were getting out of the car, just like, you know, the total, they, you know, they called in the therapist, like the doorknob confession, you know, you've <laughs> just done like a 50 minute therapy session, blah, blah, blah. And then you're walking out and put your hand on the door and you turn around and be like, oh yeah. And by the way, I think I'm an alcoholic. See you next week, you know, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> like that doorknob confession. And so I'm dropping Annabella off at, um, you know, in the carpool line. And she's like, um, and by the way, I think the reason that I get homesick at sleepovers is because um, we don't really spend any time together anymore. And I was like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Because of course I work from home, like I'm around her all the time, but I know that there's that contrast of Evie, like my youngest is like literally on top of me all the time, literally right. wanting that mommy time, mommy time, mommy time. And so I just think it's so interesting as, you know, mom for me personally to be going through all of that and to recognize the way that they need me is so different right now. Right. And how can I really be there for one that's in puberty and one how do I, how do I walk those lines and do that dance? It's really yes. fascinating. It is. It is super interesting. Yeah. 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 So, um, when we have like, I, cause I know like, you know, there's that whole thing of like, okay, don't, um, don't look at me or don't, um, don't touch me when you're dropping me off or don't hug me when you say hello, like those kind of things that that individuation. Mm -hmm. And I think as moms, it's so important for us to not take that personally. Right. And I love what you're saying about really looking at, okay, as your kids are going into puberty, what is that new level and layer of self-care that you can start to do so that you are getting some of that um, you know, to put it in the hormone um, world, not cortisol, but the hormone that's the... Um, the oxytocin. Oxytocin, thank you. Like, how can you get that oxytocin now that you're not going to be getting that from your, from your tween or your teen, you know? Yeah. And, it, you know, there may still be ways that you can, that it may be that when you're, when you, it may not be a drop off, right. but you may, and sometimes I think like, I think that our children also still love to be reminded of how much we love them sometimes. For sure. So that, you know, when they come home, it may be that like, we're in the privacy of our own kitchen. I'm going to hug and kiss you as much as I want. You know, just like them knowing that you still love them that much, I think can also be a helpful way. And, it, and they may still give you the like, get off me, you're gross. I don't know. Don't touch me. Yeah. But I think that there's also those places, like I think we all know, like my daughter's time is like right before bed. Right. She will let me cuddle with her forever yeah. right before bed because yeah. it's, you know, that's when she, her defenses are down. She's like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. So finding the ways that we, that also work for us. And I think, you know, it, you're lucky that you have another little one around that you can turn to and yeah. finding other people in our lives that we can spend that kind of time with is really important. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So when, when we look at it, let, let's talk a little bit about what happens specifically in their brains when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to really raising our kids. And I've done a couple of shows around this topic and I just had an expert named Bree Mathers that was on a couple shows ago that talked about, you know, the over-sexualization of our girls and self-objectification, self which I thought was so fascinating. And just what's happening with our teenagers and with our kids that are going through adolescence and how much things have changed since we were in puberty and adolescence, 
because of things like the internet and mobile devices and stuff like that. What sort of impact are you seeing on our kids and adolescents because of all of these new technology type things? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, the first thing is that the fundamental purpose of puberty has not changed, that it still is to achieve biological sexual maturity. Right. And that doesn't mean that every young person's going to have sex or every young person's going to have a child, but like cross species, that's why this happens. Like, mm-hmm. so that you can do that. So these, these normal sexual urges that are coming. And I think, you know, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that we talk a lot about what changes in this social reorientation is this strong interest in high intensity emotional relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that is the piece that, Adolescents are really trying to figure it out because as human beings, that's one thing that's very distinct for us in our species is that we have to navigate a complex social relationship to be able to be sexually successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that we, I think that adolescents are really motivated to do that. And so they're practicing a lot. And often it's the relationships that they have even with their best friend where they have really strong intimate relationships that are much more impactful than the relationships they're having with a romantic partner or somebody that they're dating or going out with, especially in the early years. But the other side of it is that adolescents, those relationships, those early relationships that we often like brush off and say, Oh, they're puppy love. They're not important. They are so important. Mm. And, you know, we often use the metaphor of Romeo and Juliet. Like there is no other age at which two people could meet each other, exchange about 50 words, have one kiss, and then decide they're going to die for each other. Right. That's how passionate love is at that time. They're highly motivated to fall in love. Mm. And I think that we need to be thinking about like, how do we create positive open experiences where they can learn from those, those relationships that they're not going to be overexposed. Cause I think exactly what you're talking about with all this media, especially the social media, there's blatant opportunity for overexposure. Yeah. Um, we've been asking a lot and talking to a lot of collaborators about what are the effects of the hypersexualization um, in media about adolescents. I think we don't have a good answer yet about what it's doing to adolescent brain development to see that. But I think that access to pornography is definitely normalizing a lot of things that were not at all normalized for prior generations. Yeah. They have access to information that was never readily available. And most of what they saw that was sexually explicit was often static images versus now we're at a place where people can see 3D porn or have virtual reality porn. And so that is the, the potential for various learning in that context is really different. Mm. So I think that we need to be thinking about how as parents, we can really positively scaffold the, the exposure to those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the most important thing though, is just really having open and honest communication. I think I've done a lot of interviews with adolescents about their romantic relationships and specifically about their early romantic relationships. The first ones that they remember, their first kiss. And the main thing they say to me over and over again is, you know, nobody ever asked me about this. I've never talked to anybody. And as a parent, Mm. that just like breaks my heart because Mm. like, I want to know if my, my child has a relationship that just, you know, breaks her heart or they break up or it's terrible or 
you know, even thinking about like who their first crush is and what does that mean? It's like making sure those discussions are happening and trying to keep those, those lines of communication open. I think it's one of the most important things. Do you have any specific tips around how we can protect our kids more, um, from the overexposure? Yeah. You know, I think that is a place where as parents, we really have to take an active role. Um, I think, you know, whether it's anything from, um, limiting access to cell phones, internet, making sure we have good parental controls. And I know the kids are always like two steps ahead of us. They can almost, you know, unprogram anything we put on there. Yeah. But, you know, just common sense things of putting computers in public places so that your child's not using media by themselves. And, um, you know, I think the one thing I'm just like wed to at this point is as long as we can delay access to smartphones and cell phones for kids, the better. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of places to make an emergency phone call <laughs> that yeah. doesn't need to be your child's own cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, um, you know, it was interesting just hearing a lot of the middle school parents talk about that and how, you know, I think she, um, the health director at our school was saying, you know, about 40% of kids or 60%, she felt like of sixth graders don't have smart, have phones yet. Whereas the parent I was next to was like, my daughter tells me everybody has a phone except for her, you know? And I think there is, I mean, even, I don't know about you, but Annabella's asked for a phone a gazillion times. And it's just like, I mean, I'm like, honey. So we got her one that's like not hooked up where she can (laughs) play some certain games. You know, she's like, but I want to text. I'm like, no. You can call, use an old fashioned phone, honey, you know, like, oh my gosh, but it is, it's like, and then us, I think as parents feel pressured where we don't also want our kids to be the weirdo that doesn't have a phone when everybody else does. And then all of a sudden it becomes like that thing, you know, it's like the parent that has no sugar in the house. You can never eat sugar. And then they're over at the friend's house binging on sugar because (laughs) they've been, you know, it's like, oh my gosh trying to figure out all of those different checks and balances and really feeling what's in alignment for us and our values and what we believe and all of that. And knowing that us as parents, I know myself included, I'm on my phone all the time. So then I'm modeling for my daughters. I'm on the phone all the time. I'm on social media all the time. I'm doing all these things on social media. So it's like, oh, as parents, what a mirror for us to be looking at ourselves as well. Totally. And I think that that is as much as we can be in integrity with what we're saying to them and what we're doing, the better. Because they totally pick up on that if we are out. And I think, I think you're right. Like it, it, this is the hard work. And unfortunately the, like the World Wide web was released and especially smartphones and the media that we have now, social media was released without any real infrastructure. And so putting real good guardrails in there of letting your kids know that you're going to be checking their social media accounts, you're going to be aware of what's going on, that you plan to be looking at that as much as anything else. One of the things that I heard extensively from adolescents is that when their social relationships were good, they spent a lot of time talking in person, they spent a lot of time talking on the phone. As soon as things started going south, Mm. everything switched to text and social media. Mm. So I think also we need to really support our kids in having good conflict resolution skills. Yeah. They know when, if you have an argument with a friend or you need to give somebody some feedback, you should do it in person. That's not something that we take care of on social media or via text. So smart. I love that. Yeah. Gosh. And I mean, then that's good advice for all of us. Yeah. You know, my, my husband and I, I remember when we were first dating, instant messaging was very new and we were both at, at desk jobs at that time. And so we would 
do this whole social media flirting and what have you. And then there was like a misunderstanding that happened. And my, and Rob said, there's no inflection key. Mm. Like you didn't get the inflection that I meant with that. And so we're like, yeah, let's just not talk about deep stuff on, on instant message anymore, you know? And I think that that's true for all of us, that when we have something that's going on to talk live with someone in person, obviously is best, at least on the phone, we have things like Zoom and Skype and all these ways that we can also see each other. So there's so many options out there. That's just good advice in general. I love right. That. And oh, yeah, go ahead. One thing I was going to say though, is that what we do know is that adolescent brains are really um, activated by peer engagement mm -hmm. and they don't, the peer doesn't have to be physically present. So just having your cell phone, whether it's like in your room with you or lying on your chest, that is giving them the arousal experience of having a friend around. And so we need to also be thinking about like the effect of social media on adolescents is pretty significant and it's more significant likely than it is for children or for adults. And so they, they, we, we know that the presence of peers activates the arousal systems in the brain for adolescents in a way that doesn't happen for children or adults. And so we need to be thinking about, they probably need even more um, support and guidance and how to use that responsibly and when is appropriate times and when they need to just be alone. Wow. That's so, it's so interesting that the, brain, the centers in their brain are lighting up as if they were with that person, but they're not. Yeah. Talk about yeah. loneliness and isolation. Like what a, what a recipe in some ways for setting things up to become really isolating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and adolescents are so sensitive and attuned to what their peers may be thinking about them. And a lot of this is linked to, there's a real significant increase in testosterone that happens during puberty in both girls and boys. And um, testosterone is definitely a hormone that drives seeking social status. Mm. And so it's this attention to this social realm that is really important all of a sudden. And um, as that increases, we just want to make sure that we are, you, you don't even have to have an adolescent. You can just say, I'm going to videotape this and I might show it to a friend of yours later. And that can activate reward, circuit, reward circuitry in the brain in a way that doesn't happen for children or adults. They don't even have to, the peer doesn't even have to be like anywhere around. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just the thought that it could happen, their brains and their behavior changes. Yep. Wow. Yep. Fascinating. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I know that we're starting to wrap up here. So yeah. um, anything else that you wanted to make sure, like any other final advice or perspectives that you wanted to offer all these mamas here? I think, you know, there was a, there was like this sort of popular media idea that adolescence was this period of like storm and stress. Mm. And the interesting thing is that if you go back and you ask parents and you ask adolescents, the adolescents don't have that perception. It's the parents that do. Uh. And so we hold a lot of power about how our adolescents are experiencing, how our peripubertal kids are experiencing this time. And if we're getting really bent out of shape and we're getting really you know, frazzled by it, it's going to make it hard for everyone. But if we find a way to stay grounded, it's really can be an amazing time for all of us. Love it. I love it. So the final question that I'll ask you is something that I ask all of my guests here on the Mama Truth Show that are moms. And that is what's messy and what's magical about motherhood for you these days? Oh gosh. Um, so I think still the most magical part is I do lie with my daughter every night before bed 
and we do a meditation. And just last night she was lying there and she's just like, mom, I love you so much. And I was like, oh, me too. I love you so much. <laughs> That's the magical part. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I've ever had an experience of having somebody love me quite that much. Yeah. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, as far as like what is challenging, I think that, um, like finding a way to stay centered when I get so frustrated. And yeah. I think that, you know, I do find it's those moments where I'm just like trying to get her out of, you know, motivated to get out of the house in the morning when she's like dragging her feet and feeling really slow. And I'm like, yeah. how do I get to the place that I'm like, dude, this is on you. When yeah. you're ready to leave, just let me know. Yeah. Finding that place of being real Zen is the biggest challenge for me yeah. right now. I feel you. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here on the show. I so appreciate it. And I know that all of these moms that are listening also appreciate it. And with that, is it, do you have a URL of the um, website that they can check out the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's developingadolescent.berkeley.edu. Awesome. Developingadolescent.berkeley.edu. You can check that out. And I'm sure that there's I noticed on the website, there's research papers and all sorts of things where people can kind of dive into the work that you guys are doing over there. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. So with that, mamas, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of motherhood until next week, where I'm going to be talking about potty training and puberty WTF. Okay. Until next (laughs) week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, mamas. Did you know that Amy has a new ebook out? It's called Sacred Self-Care for Moms, Seven Steps to Nurturing Yourself So You Can Be the Mom You Were Born to Be. And you can receive your free copy by going to sacredselfcarebook.com. That's sacredselfcarebook.com. And please don't keep the Mama Truth Show a secret. The biggest compliment you can give is to share the Mama Truth Show with your loved ones and write a review on iTunes. Until next time, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of motherhood.